part of God's Word open before you, if you can, uh, Titus chapter 3. Tonight we are bringing into land our little short series that we've been doing in this letter to the church on Crete and to a young man named Titus. And uh, so tonight we're finishing that series. Uh, I want to remind you as we begin, as I do every Sunday night, Q&A will follow. If you have questions, it'd be great to keep track of them. You might like to write them down on your Care and Connect card as we go. Or if you've got a brilliant memory, just lock it in your steel trap of a mind. Does that sound all right? Very good, because the questions make it far more enjoyable afterwards. So I'd love for you to ask questions as they come up. First of all, let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God, and we delight that in your mercy, you have provided this little letter for us. Father, along the way, you're reminding us and you're challenging us to be made more and more like Jesus. Father, by your Holy Spirit here tonight, would you challenge us and change us? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if life is a gift, what are you doing with it? If life is a gift, what are you doing with the gift of life that you've received? You might think I'm sitting in church. Surely God's got to give me a brownie mark for that, yeah? That's not a bad start. So what are you doing with this gift? Well, there's two ways to think about it. What are we doing with our life? Well, I want to suggest to you tonight that there is a fruitful life A life that is lived with purpose and meaning for something bigger than yourself and for the glory of God. That's a fruitful life. And I want to suggest that there's a second kind of life, a life that we're going to call tonight an unfruitful life. And uh, symbolically, empty bowl, no fruit in it. It's unfruitful, you see? Very good, everyone's on board with the symbology. That'll be helpful as we go through our sermon tonight. So the fruitful life and the unfruitful life. Look, it is possible to live an unfruitful life, and that is really tragic. It is really tragic. Let me tell you a particularly sad story that came my way this week. Uh, This young lad's name is Piawat Harakan, and he turned up in my news feed this week as a young man, 17 years old, living in northern Thailand. And the reason he turned up in my news feed is because, very tragically, he was found dead in front of his computer. He'd been gaming for three days straight. And he died at his desk in the middle of a a gaming session. Now, guys, I've got to tell you, I find that incredibly tragic. And as a 17-year-old, all of that energy poured into pixels on a screen, that has to be an unfruitful life. What, what is left? What was one that was of any lasting worth? That's a tragic and fruitless life. But that would be a sad note to finish. What I want to do instead is to tell you a story about a fruitful life. I don't know how many of you people here knew Jeff Corkill. Uh, the lovely Bev Corkill's husband, Jeff, passed away a couple of years ago now uh, from cancer, very tragically, and we miss him. Uh, Jeff was a man who lived for God. And uh, there's a picture of Jeff being interviewed up the front here, standing where I am. He was a partner here at New Life, and in the midst of his cancer treatment, this is him standing up and exhorting us to trust in God. Uh, When Jeff, uh, tragically and way too early, passed away, his family sent me uh, this little note. And I want to read it to you. 
It says, today our dad, Jeff Corkill, passed away and entered into the presence of Jesus. Whilst we are saddened at our loss, we've also been laughing lots at the many crazy antics and jokes for which our dad was renowned. Dad was a great man who invested his life into relationship with God and others. Early next week, we'll communicate funeral details. Guys, I went to that funeral. And I've got to tell you, it was one of the most uplifting and beautiful things that I've been a part of. It was a great Christian funeral. And if some of you are sitting here thinking, what are you talking about? How, how can it be a great funeral? Can I tell you how it can be great? Because person after person stood up the front and said, Jeff loved God. Jeff loved his God and poured his life out for him into the lives of many people. And what they did is they, they just stood up the front and said, Jeff loved me and pointed me to Jesus. He loved me and pointed me to Jesus. And time and time again, I heard testimony to a fruitful life. Jeff did all sorts of professional things. He did all sorts of family things. But the thing that was repeated again and again from the front was, this man loved God and helped others to do the same. The very definition of a fruitful life. And guys, I want to tell you tonight that fruitfulness matters. Jesus calls out the Pharisees and he says this. So Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he says this to them um, in Matthew 21. Therefore, I tell you, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. God looks at fruitless leaders and says, if you're not producing godly fruit, it'll be removed. The kingdom of God will be given to the fruit bearers. How will we bear fruit? Well, Jesus tells us in John 15. I don't know if you remember this. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Notice what he says. If you remain in me, and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. How will we live a fruitful life? It must be in connection with Jesus. In fact, there's something more amazing. If you bear this fruit, Jesus continues in John 15, he says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. See, here's the thing about fruitfulness. When we see it, We can know something about who the person is following. Fruitful lives reveal a discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus, right? An apprenticeship to Jesus. You will show yourselves to be my disciples if you live fruitfully. Well, we want to know about that. So what does that look like in Crete? Crete is a little island in the Mediterranean that this letter is written to. Titus is living there and he's been told to get these people in line. So what does living fruitfully look like? On Crete. Well, here are our friends at the, uh, the RFS, and they've come to visit us uh, a, a year or so ago. And if you'd asked them on that night, I'm sure they would have said that they were ready, right? They're ready to fight a fire. But if I asked them tonight, are you ready to fight a fire? In fact, Sean's here. Hey, Sean and Annabelle. Um, are you guys ready? Your kids at home. But, but there's a different state of readiness right now, right? You guys are... Really, yeah, really, really ready. And what I want you to think about tonight, guys, is there's a difference between the concept of ready and being ready. Okay, and we're going to hear that turn up in uh, this little passage here. Come with me to chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 2. 
It says in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. What's a funny little list at some level, isn't it? Why does he write these things to the people in Crete? Well, you can remember uh, earlier in chapter 1, and Jeff pointed this out to us, in chapter 1, we see this. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans, Cretans, the people who live in Crete, are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Now, any stereotype about a community, right, has to have two things. It has to be so generalizable that everyone goes, yeah, that's roughly right. But at the same time, it will never be specifically applicable, right? Everybody's an individual, okay? But what it was, the people in Crete were enough like this that he could say they were always liars, they were evil brutes, and they were lazy gluttons. So what do you write to a church on an island where that's what the general population is like? Well, you write that they need to be different from their society. And so you write something like this, they need to be obedient and not rebellious. They need to be ready to do good and not lazy. They need to be truthful and not slanderous liars. They need to be gentle and not brutal. I've put their nor floppy. We, I, I was with the, um, with the men's uh, life group on Tuesday night, right? And I said, guys, it tells us all that we need to be gentle always. And the guys are like, oh, come on. Like, how do you, what? We have to be gentle always. Aren't there some times when you need to stand up for yourself and all that? That's right. But what, what Paul was doing was he was saying to a, a society that is evil brutes, right? They, their first response is violence and aggression. And he says, instead, what I want you to be is always gentle, right? It didn't mean that they were to give up caring about things or being engaged in... That, that wasn't the problem. The problem was that by default, they were violent, And he wants the new life to see them be gentle by default. Can you see the difference between those two things? And so Paul is writing into their circumstance. And then he says that they're to be considerate and not gluttonous. And across the day, I've been saying, what does it mean not to be gluttonous? Well, to be gluttonous is to say that the chip bowl is mine. The chip bowl is mine. You you know what it's like. There's a chip bowl sitting out there and somebody picks it up and puts it on their lap. Well, that's not, how it, that's not how we do it. We share the chip bowl, as we will have practice straight after this. Is that right? Tonight. So everybody, we're going to conduct the experiment tonight after the service, right? But here's the thing. The gluttonous person doesn't care for others. They only care for themselves. My chip bowl, shovel, shovel, shovel. So to be considerate is to offset the fact that these guys were gluttonous. There was other problems on Crete too. Does anyone know what this coloured light means? What does it mean? Slow down. That is from uh, someone who doesn't yet have a licence. Is that correct? All right. What does this, everybody who has a licence, what does this orange light mean? Speed up. Yes, I've heard it three times across every service today. All right. Let's be honest. That's, that's, what, that's what it means. Now, here's the interesting thing. I am intrigued at the amount of disregard that this colour, and then the next colour. Does anyone know what the next colour after this is? Well, it's kind of what we call, Carolyn and I call it, deep orange. 
That's what we see, right? We're sitting in our car at the intersection and we've got a green arrow and there are people still going through the intersection. And Kara and I go, well, it can't be red, can it? It must just be very deep orange on the other side over there because a red light everyone would stop at, wouldn't they? It's extraordinary the low-grade fever of what I've called being rebellious that is in our society. The road rules don't apply to me, literally. Speed limits, serving suggestion. Red lights for bad drivers, not for me. There is an extraordinary low-level habit of disobedience and rebelliousness in our society. And I would humbly argue that people who so regularly transgress the laws on the road must show it in other places in their private lives. I'm utterly convinced that it's a a small um, explanation, a small public visible sign of an inward rebelliousness. And that's what Paul tells us is happening in the society in Crete. Have a look at 3.3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating others. What a terrible description of the world that they lived in. You notice here, we call our church what? What's our church called? New Life. We talk about new life here. Fantastic. We want you to find new life. But if we're to talk about new life, we must be able to talk about an old life. Are you with me? Makes sense, right? We've got a new life. There must be an old life. What was the old life like? It must be different enough to be separated so that this can be rightly called a new life. See, Paul had an old life. See what he says there in in, uh, the start of verse 3. At one time, we too, includes himself, were foolish and disobedient. What an indictment of society. Foolish, disobedient, and deceived. That's what he says he was before he became a Christian. And what, no doubt, we were as well. And then he goes on to talk about what that dis- disobedience and, um, and deception results in. It results in them being enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Now, guys, I've been thinking about this for a while. And I think that there is a gap in our moral makeup here in Australia, particularly in Sydney, but across our country. And I want to suggest to you, we need to mind the gap as Christians. What's the gap? Three areas that we can be enslaved by our passions and pleasures. Gambling, alcohol, and pornography. Gambling, alcohol, and pornography. What, why these things? They enslave, built on our passions and our pleasures. What does it mean to be enslaved to these things? And look, uh, with the exception of alcohol, although maybe I'm just naive, um, they are all wonderfully provided for at the most convenient way by our phones, aren't they? I mean, I am blown away at the number of gambling ads that I see around the place. They are pervasive. They are everywhere. And my understanding is that something like I remember the stat from, um, from uh, the Central Coast. It said 75% of men under the age of 25 have at one stage gambled on a phone app. Just extraordinary numbers. Can I encourage you 
that if anyone wants to gamble here, come and hand me $50 in $10 notes. I'll keep three of them and hand two back to you and you will be so far in front. You can go home a winner every single time. Wouldn't that be amazing? If you think about the amount of money, anyway, it's just, it's truly staggering to me. And if you need to lose some money and feel good about it, I'll give you a smiley stamp as I hand the money back to you. It's appalling. And that's not to talk about alcohol, uh, which not only will corrupt our body, but lead to activities that will disgrace us, and let alone pornography, which enslaves us with desires and ideals that we don't want to live up to. What's the pattern here? It starts with an appetite. It moves to a compulsion. Just one more. Everyone else is doing it. It won't matter that much. It's just a little. It's so easy. It's not illegal. Appetite, compulsion. Here's what always follows, guys. How do I know if I'm enslaved? You'll find yourself in shame. Because sons and daughters of God who are born to be free will always feel shame when they're enslaved by sin. What follows from that is unavoidable loss. Loss of dignity, loss of finance, loss of health. These enslaving passions destroy us, church. They are destroying our society. And what does Paul say about the relationships of those who live like that? He says, we lived in malice and envy. Malice, not wishing well for others. Envy, hating the success of others. It says, being hated and hating one another. You've heard of a virtuous circle. That's when good things follow on from good things. This is evil following on from evil. And for some of you, this might look like your workplace, hating and being hated. It might look like your friendship circle. These destructive relationships exist in our lives. And to hate and be hated in endless cycle is the very definition of the fruitless life. We, we don't want this. We don't want this. Now, Paul's pretty bleak here, isn't he? I came to church and we talked about all this stuff. Paul's very bleak. But what I want you to see, Paul's not afraid to show us the depths, but he will never leave us there. Have a look, pick pick it up with me at verse 4. Whenever you think it's got too dark, whenever you think it's got too dark in the Scriptures, particularly in Paul, look out for the word but. And if I can say this appropriately, there are some great buts in the Bible. Some great buts. This is one of them. But when, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You see, he'll take us to the depths. Paul isn't afraid to say, our world is shot through with sin, but he never leaves us there. He never leaves us in the depths. So let's look at this beautiful salvation that we have. Our beautiful salvation shows us, in verse 4, that God moves first. God moves first. Have a look with me at at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, 
He saved us. Who moved first? Not me towards God, but God towards me. And so we say with Ephesians 2, uh, verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Did you deserve to be saved? And no, that's right, both of those things, because you're dearly loved by God, but stained by sin, it's a gift. You don't deserve it. Secondly, we see that God saves and that he saves completely. See in verse 5, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. I love this verse. It's becoming one of my faves. Uh, Luke chapter 6 and verse 35, it says this, Then your reward will be great, and you'll be called children of the Most High. Here's why, here's why. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. What's my God like? He's the God who is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. What is God like? He saves you when you didn't deserve it. God moves, God saves. Thirdly, God renews. Have a look at verse 5. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. I love how God saves us. There is no life so shipwrecked that God can't save you. No one is so lost that God can't renew us. And how does he do it? Well, he saves us, he washes us, he makes us born anew by the Holy Spirit. And how much Holy Spirit does he give us? Well, it says generously there. And in John 3, it says, for God gives the Spirit without limit. God saves you, he renews you, and lastly, he appoints you. Verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Well, what do we inherit? We inherit what Jesus inherits. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus has been appointed heir of all things. He is appointed heir of all things. And do you know what? You will inherit all things with Jesus. How glorious. So what is God's salvation like? He moves first. He saves us completely. He renews us by the Holy Spirit and he appoints you as heirs of God. And church, I've said this this morning. Uh, I guess I want to ask this question. If that's true, then first and foremost, have you received this salvation? If you're sitting here tonight and you don't know the washing, the rebirth, the second chance, the new life he offers, then I'd love you to know that today. Today is a great day to get saved. God, save me and renew me. Have you received this salvation? But I assume more of you have. Are you moved by this salvation? Is it glorious? Do you love it? And church, if you're sitting there thinking, it's okay. I mean, it's mildly interesting that God saved me. It's better than not being saved, I guess. Sunday night, how excited could you get about anything, really? I'm hoping there are hot dogs for supper. Here's the thing, church. If this doesn't grab you, I've got nothing. Really, I've got nothing to, nothing to offer you. If we're not moved by the fact that God saved us when we didn't deserve, if we don't get excited about the fact that he'll wash us, cleanse us, if we don't get that, I... I haven't got much else for you. And I guess I want to ask you, I think it does move you. And if it does, don't you long for this salvation for those that don't know it yet? 
We're here to see new life in Jesus come to every home in Oran Park in the growing southwest for their salvation, the good of the community and the glory of God. Are you longing for that? I want to see my neighbors get it. I want to see the guys that I met through soccer this year with, with Zaki come to know it. This is the very definition of the fruitful life, seeing others come to know that for sure. Hey, I want to introduce you to this bloke. His name is Onishi. Cool name, right? Um, he started a restaurant called Suta uh, in Japan. It's got nine seats in it and it serves noodles, right? Hardly a unique thing. Do you know what's unique about this restaurant? It's the first noodle bar to receive a Michelin star. Does anyone know what a Michelin star is? It's basically the highest award in restauranting. And he won it for a noodle bar that has nine seats in it. This is something that chefs around the world will slave for for their whole life. It's the pinnacle recognition. Nine seats, noodles. How? How does he win a star for that? Because he's utterly devoted to the perfection of noodles. They're the best noodles that they can possibly be. And so what does it mean to be devoted? To be devoted is to bring the very best of ourselves. The very best of ourselves. Well, you can be devoted to noodles, or you can be devoted to something else. Have a look at what Paul suggests here in 3.8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. See, we need to be devoted to doing good. And that might be a new thing for you. What what would it mean for me to bring my best to doing what is good? Now, we need to notice something really important in this message. God has majored on salvation first, and then he has told them to do good works. Do you see this? This is so important. Pay attention. If this is the only thing you get, look at the direction of the arrow. Everyone with me? Salvation first. We didn't deserve it. And then good works as a response to the grace of God. They follow on from salvation. They don't achieve salvation. Do you see? It's not that I strive really hard to be good enough for God. And he says, oh, you've done well. Let me save you. Not how it works. You were a wicked rebel. God saved you and now, washed off, cleansed, rebirthed, go do good works. Do you see the difference? It's all there. And on top of that, he tells us wonderfully that these good works are prepared in advance. Have a listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. For we are God's handiwork. Now, Now remember it said, we sang a song at the start, I am who he says I am. Church, you ready to put a new name sticker on? Have I got a sticker on? I don't have a sticker on tonight. (sighs) My apologies, everyone. We love it when you wear stickers. Here's the thing. If I put one on right now, I would say on it, God's handiwork. Right? God's handiwork. Who am I? I am God's handiwork. That's who you are too if you're trusting in Jesus. I'm created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Look at the yellow text, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has thought of you. God has loved you, he's saved you, and he has prepared good works for you. Now, it's a letter to a church, and we remember we'd heard earlier about false teachers. He warns about them. Have a look in uh, verses 9 and following. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. 
because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such a person is warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Well, what's he saying here? Church, we can't be on about being divided all the time. But we need to to define what we need to divide over very carefully. Is it the gospel? Is it the way that we're saved? Yes, if you hear somebody preaching another gospel, cut them off. If you hear someone saying, man, I think it's really important, the order of the um, genealogy in Matthew is really important, but you don't think what I think, so we're going to start a new church. You need to look at them and go, okay, we're going to let you go there. Don't do that anymore. If they do it again and again, he says, well... um, there is a place for rightful contending, but if they consist, uh, if they can consider doing this again and again, if they're persistent dividers, leave them alone. We aren't to be a divided church, we're to be united around the good news of Jesus. Well, he finishes off the letter in a very chatty way. And uh, we can see that in verses 12 and following. And uh, he says it this way, if you have a look. Uh, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. What's he saying at the end here? Well, first he says, be hospitable to the saints. There are some people traveling around. Give them a home. Look after them. Lovely. And then he says, you're supposed to look after your heart. You're supposed to have healthy hearts. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And thirdly, if we do this, we are urged to not live unproductive lives. Live a productive life. How? By living for God's glory and the good of others. All right, so we need to do good. You ready, church? Go do good. That's the big application of today. Do good. Sounds a bit obvious, doesn't it? Do good. Well, how can we do it better? First thing I want to say is we can't continue without reflecting on fruitfulness. We can't continue without reflecting on fruitfulness. Are you currently being fruitful? It's pretty obvious that dying in front of your gaming computer is a really wasted life, yeah? But here's the thing, where you are right now, are you living a fruitful life? And I don't mean that everybody needs to leave their jobs and go and become missionaries. Though if you want to do that, come talk to me, brilliant. Instead, where you are right now, are you being profitable? Are you using your skills, opportunities, relationships for God's glory? Or are you squandering them thoughtlessly? We need to reflect more. I put together this little worksheet, uh, which I gave a link to in the newsletter. It lets us think some more about where we can be doing good for God. Um, I'll let you download it and have a look at it. I'm happy to chat some more on that in the question time if someone wants to know. The second thing I want you to do in light of tonight's message, it might be helpful to think about how new my life is. What do I mean by that? Remember Paul said that there would be an old life if you have a new life. So I want to ask you Christians tonight, is my life changed by the grace of God or does it look indistinguishable to my old life? 
Are there enslaving passions in my life? Am I addicted? Am I regularly filled with shame? Do I need to discover the fullness of the forgiveness that's in Jesus? And if you need help with this church, you don't have to write what it is, but why don't you write, pray for me that I might truly be free on your Care and Connect card. I would love to pray with you as you seek to turn aside from these things. And if necessary, help you find professional help. The third thing is something just really simple. It's the most practical bit of the application tonight. We need to be devoted to looking for the good God has prepared. Remember our noodle guy, Onishi? What was he passionate about? Noodles. Devoted to the perfection of noodles. Brothers and sisters, God has prepared good work for you. Are you devoted to finding it? Are you devoted to finding it? What, here's the practical thing, right? What I want you to do this week, the sun comes up, I want you to leap out of bed. Everyone's leaping out of bed at the moment, it's all right. Fourth term, coming up to Christmas, I'm sure you're leaping out of bed. Okay, let's imagine you're leaping out of bed and as you leap out of bed, here's the prayer I want you to pray. God, show me the good works you've prepared for me this week. Right? Show me the good works you prepared for me this week. And then in devotion, bringing the best of yourselves, go, how can I do good works where I am today? Not somewhere else, not wishing ourselves away, but right where I am. God, help me to do good works. I'll tell you why, guys. Tell you why. Here's the thing. Sooner or later, we're going to have another funeral here at New Life. That's for real. And I'll be standing up here, and here's what I want to do. I want to give thanks for your life. And when I do so, I want to be able to point to the fruitfulness of your life. I want to be able to say, you loved God and you poured your life out where you were for him and for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God and you long for us. You call us, you command us to do good. We thank you, Father, that you've prepared it in advance for us. And I ask that you might give us eyes to see energy to be devoted, and Father, the joy of fulfilling the good work that you've prepared. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, Q&A time. You might have a question. Uh, I would love to hear it. Uh, Meg is going to run the microphone tonight. Wow, Meg, fantastic. Uh, That's really good. Has someone got a question for us as we think about doing good and uh, all of the things that we've heard tonight? A question to get us started. If we, ha- if we get a starting question, we're always good from there, but we just need a starting question. Someone got a starting question. It's like a low bid. Yes, Tom. <laughs> is Jesus the Son of God? Thank you, Tom. Yes. Uh, yes, he is. No. I've uh, not really got a question. But the, the reflection in our life group on, this, on the study that we did tonight was more, is there some, some clarity on the lines of which these we can't be divisive on these things. Ah, so, sure. So we talked a little bit about, well, there's certain items of faith that we definitely can't move on. Then there's other things which other similar churches may do slightly differently, and that's okay. And then there's other things that other churches may be doing things that don't accord with, yeah. So the question, what? Tom, is what are the things that are unprofitable and divisive that we should... Uh, not get divided on. 
Yeah, it's perhaps a bit broader question. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, well, here's the thing. Um, the history of the Christian church, particularly the Protestant church, is defined by a division. Okay? There was only one church at the start, you'll be delighted to know. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. There was one church. And then the Eastern Orthodox broke away. And then the Protestants broke away. And once the Protestants broke away, they shattered into every particular shade of disagreement that any human being could possibly imagine. We, we are so beyond denominations that now people don't even care that there are denominations anymore because we're so divided that you can't even break it into little units. It's just we're the church of our own opinion on the whole, really. That's really what it comes down to. So I think Christians have done very poorly at this, Tom. We've decided that everything is a hill to die on when very few are. And when we needed someone to die on a hill, there was only one guy who did it, right? It's not you, it's Jesus. And so I actually think we need to work harder at finding the things we have in common rather than trying to define ourselves against one another. Um, and that's a sad and sorry history, particularly of Protestantism. Um, but uh, it just infects Christians. And so if you find yourself in a situation where people are dividing, I think it's fair to say we can in good conscience disagree without us having to break fellowship. Yeah? We can in good conscience disagree without having to break fellowship. Thanks, mate. It's a good question. Really good question. Uh, another question? Yep, hand it back. Sean. <laughs> it helps us for our podcast. Now I'm going to shake the walls down. Um, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels. Are we talking about gossip here? Or like it goes on to say uh, quarrels about the law, and I think that probably flows on with Tom's yeah. question and the divisiveness and what Protestants... But, is, that, is that the connection there, or what are we talking about? Yeah, it's both end, I think, yeah. um, Sean. So... Uh, uh, genealogies and arguments about the law is particularly Jewish. So there would have been Jewish background Christians who wanted to say, hey, Gentiles, non-Jews who've come into the church, you're not fully legit rigididge unless you kind of get more Jewish. Okay? And so that would have been the sort of stuff they're arguing about. But when it says they're foolish controversies, yeah, I'm comfortable that that would co cover stupid gossip stuff. Um, and so I think there's the personal foolishness and the religious divisiveness. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and Paul is essentially saying, don't be a blockhead. Don't, don't, don't break your fellowship over things that are nothings. It's, it's just not worth it. Our unity is too precious. Yeah, oh, it's a good question though. Thanks, mate. Someone else, another question? Okay. It's actually an awesome segue. Do you know what we're going to do next? We're going to celebrate our unity. 